With great expectation, we proceed further in the consideration of the moral attributes of God and ask this question. What do we know about the loving kindness and mercy of God from the Bible? And among the many scriptures that stand out, we have selected this. With everlasting kindness will I have mercy on thee, saith the Lord thy Redeemer. In our study of the being of God from the many revelations of the Bible, we have seen that there are two great groupings of characteristics attached to his nature. First, there are characteristics or attributes that are necessarily a part of the nature of the Godhead, which do not involve the choice of the will, and therefore are unalterable or unavoidable. These natural qualities of God's essence were seen to be his eternity, his being everywhere present, his state of knowledge and wisdom, and his unbounding power or energy to accomplish all that can be accomplished. But then our studies carried us into an entirely different realm where we have been considering the character of God. Character may be distinguished from constitution in that it is a voluntary something, whereas the latter is involuntary. Constitution furnishes the equipment for moral character, but it is not itself moral character. Moral character must always be a matter of free choice. It must be a voluntary action. There must be a may or may not involved, or the power of contrary choice. If the subject must of necessity take the course of actions pursued, the will is necessitated, and no moral character is manifested. Moral character involves responsible action. A moral being can be held accountable for only what he had a part in forming. Moral action is therefore free action. It is voluntary action. It could in every instant have been different than it in fact was. Thus moral action is very unique and different from all other actions of the universe. Man is equipped to comprehend something of the great moral character of God because he was endowed with the moral nature of God in his creation. God functions in his great unlimited realm similarly to man in his limited realm. Thus man has a common ground of understanding the manner of God's existence. We have also investigated the nature of the actions of the will and have seen that all such actions may be reduced into a threefold grouping namely, the choice of an ultimate end or objective of life, secondly, the choice of the various means to accomplish this end, and finally, the putting forth of executive volitions to carry to completion the means that were chosen. The last two groupings are dependent upon the first as moral beings cannot be inconsistent with themselves. To choose an ultimate end 
is to choose all the known means to further that ultimate end and to put forth executive actions to attain it. Moral beings must have moral enlightenment, which places before the mind a comprehension of what one's obligation is. In the case of God, moral light and wisdom are in a state of perfection, and thus there is a perfect background for absolute correct moral action. When we are told in the Bible that God is love, we are to understand that God has made choice and continues to make choice to be totally unselfish in all his actions. Love in this higher sense is not a state of the emotions, but a state of good willing, a self-determination to treat all beings with perfect impartiality and consideration for the highest well-being of all, according to the relative worth of each. God's welfare is of far greater importance, of course, than all other beings combined, and therefore it is right and proper for God to consider his own happiness first, but still not to the exclusion of the least of his moral creatures. We have seen from an abundant scriptural testimony that God is no respecter of persons, and thus is impartial toward all, and is perfect in all his actions. This unselfish devotion to the best interests of all, according to his perfect understanding, constitutes God's moral character. It is one of pure benevolence or pure love, and calls forth unending adoration of all moral beings, living according to truth, with singleness of heart, as God is. This voluntary disposition of love is described in the Bible as a state of holiness, as we have seen. Holiness is not something static, back of the will, causing its actions, but a classification of what is taking place in a disposition of love or good willing. Moral being is either holy or sinful in accordance to how he is using his faculties of personality. If his actions conform to truth and righteousness, he is holy. If not, he is missing the mark intended or is sinful. God is said to be holy then because he is absolutely benevolent in all his actions. Man is said to be sinful because he has failed to live up to the end for which God intended him to live and which end God himself lives for. So God simply has asked man to live for the same end that he lives for. And thus there could be no other possible basis of fellowship and happiness of man with God and God with man. Thus we see that holiness is a dynamic state, not a static state. It is a voluntary quality, not a fixity of constitution. Holiness is a description of the law of love in action. But this disposition of love will have manifestations. It will have reactions. It is impossible that it could be otherwise. One attribute of this pure love will be that of righteousness, or of rendering to all 
what is fit and due. God is under obligation to so conduct himself. He is the moral governor of all beings endowed with his image and cannot be indifferent to the characters which they have established for themselves. Justice must be rendered to each as well as to himself. A disposition of love toward all without impartiality must of necessity do this. Let us conceive fully that justice is not optional with God. If God is going to manifest and continue his voluntary choice of love, he must follow that course of action in his complete being that will render to everyone what is in perfect justice and perfect righteousness. For God to arbitrarily disregard the rights of all would be sinful. Thus God has his dispensations in this life, establishing partial righteousness, and in the great endless eternity, full and complete justice. We have discussed these themes at length with great solemnness. There must be a judgment when moral beings give an account of their conduct, and then an eternal separation of those who have submitted to God's measures of redemption and those who have persisted on in their selfish conduct in spite of God's overtures of mercy. If men do not like God's dispensations, let them suggest otherwise. If God cannot win the happy allegiance of men's souls, what can he do with them? Certainly man has an immortal soul and must spend eternity somewhere. If he will not respond to the kindness and love and grace of God as manifested in the advent of the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, into our humble world to die for the sins of the whole world, then what more can God do for men? If man will not respond to the enlightenment of his conscience, the enlightenment of his mind, on the great eternal power that he has manifested, then what more can he do? So great was men's responsibility in this life that no more mercy shall be extended to them who reject his overtures of kindness. They shall in perfect righteousness be banished from the admiring throngs of heaven and sadly enough be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power as has been pointed out. The tragedy of this verse is in the word from. Those souls of men shall be separated from all the glories of God's holiness and the admiring throng of his righteousness and actions. God does not expect that anyone will bring a just accusation against him in these stringent measures which he proposes of necessity to bring forth. For he knows that perfect righteousness will be manifested in his great heart of love, which also includes a love of justice. God cannot be indifferent toward good and evil then. He cannot treat those who have broken down before him in repentance and have been reconciled to him through the righteous manifestation of Christ's atoning sacrifice 
the same as those who persistently have refused to recognize his eternal power and Godhead, even though they never heard the gospel, as we have affirmed the heavens are loudly declaring the glory of God and are manifesting his handiwork toward all. The great manifestations of God to the consciences of men have made known very emphatically the existence of etern his eternal power and Godhead, so that man is without excuse, the apostle wrote to the Romans. Who shall demonstrate God's unrighteousness in all this? Who shall establish his complaint? Such objectors will be drowned out in the great chorus that re-echoes from heaven, we are told. Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. As I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. May we pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank thee for these enlightened thoughts of thy word. And now we pray that many might respond to the pleadings of thy tender mercy, might come to the Lord Jesus Christ in repentance and through faith be forgiven, be reconciled to thee, the great and loving God. Go on with happy confidence to serve thee forever. In Jesus' name, amen.